We're going to complete our two-part series in Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. And like I said last week, this is just a delightful passage for me. I really enjoy this passage. I love the instruction it gives to me and how to walk as a faithful disciple of Jesus Christ in this world. I love how it connects our walk with Christ seamlessly with the gospel of God's grace. And so it didn't take me long to determine what passage to preach on when Cliff said you have two weeks. So we are going to finish up our two-week series today. Just a little brief review of last week as we started our trek through Titus 3, 1 through 7. Paul starts us with instructions to Titus, who is a pastor, and Titus was to instruct the Christians, the believers in Crete, in a particular way, and we saw that he was to remind them first to be submissive to authorities, to be obedient and ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, and to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. And so what I said last week was that a life of grace, that is a life that is compelled, motivated, saturated in God's grace, will be characterized by a courageous submission to legitimate authorities. We see that in the first few words. That our hearts will be subject to the, the lesser authorities that God has put in place. And that is actually a reflection of our heart towards the greatest authority, namely God himself. And so our submission to, our hearts being subject to these lesser authorities, these governing authorities, these parents that God has placed in our lives, employers, and so on, it's vital that we subject ourselves to them in our hearts and have a right attitude towards them because that attitude reflects our attitude towards the greatest authority, namely God. And so a life of grace is characterized by courageous submission to legitimate authorities. Secondly, it's characterized by consistent eagerness for good works. And so we try to lay this foundation of the gospel showing that a person who is saved apart from their works will be eager to be rich in good works. And this is the calling of the New Testament throughout. Christ calls us to do our good works so that might, people might see those good works and glorify our Father in heaven. Paul tells the rich in this world not to be haughty or arrogant about their riches, but to be rich in good works, to be generous. We saw that a mother can actually be rich in good works towards her closest neighbors, namely her children and her husband. If we would have had time last week, I would have taken us to Ephesians chapter 6 and show us that uh, in our jobs, we actually can be rich in good works and how we serve our fellow colleagues and serve our employer. And so scripture calls us to be rich in good works. And I, and, I, and I mentioned that our good works start among us in the body of Christ. That's the priority. But then there's this priority of proximity. Those who are closest to us, we are to meet their urgent needs, to help them physically, monetarily, financially, whatever it might be. But then that desire to be rich in good works actually spreads out beyond our families and beyond our churches into the greater world and greater community. These good works never replace the gospel. They adorn the gospel that we believe. And then finally, we said that a life of grace is characterized by a comprehensive kindness towards others. And the reason I say comprehensive is because Paul says comprehensive. He says this in summarizing that uh, are these statements. He says, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy towards most people. No, towards all people, particularly the ones that were not inclined to show that perfect courtesy. We are to avoid that outrage culture that is so popular today on social media. Christians should never be outrage experts. We should never be well-versed in rants and rages online or with one another or with unbelievers. We are to be, like Paul says here, to speak evil of no one. Even those people we think we are justified speaking evil about. My, one of my favorite theologians, Jonathan Edwards, had a resolution. where, he, And he said in this resolution 
that he would only speak evil of another person if it were absolutely necessary. And sometimes it is absolutely necessary. But we don't do it with joy. We don't do it with disdain. We don't do it with self-righteousness. We speak evil of no one. We avoid quarreling and outrage and starting fights. See, it's easy for Christians to be lured by the temptation that it's right and it's good to start fights, verbal sparring with others, because we have the truth. We have a righteous cause. And so that the end starts to justify the means, as was so pointed, it was pointed out so well to me by a brother after church last Sunday. But Paul says, no, we avoid quarreling. We're sweet. We are gentle towards others. We hold the line convictionally. We don't pull any punches when it comes to doctrine, but we're not looking to start a fight. We're gentle with people and we show perfect courtesy towards all. We try to find ways in which Scripture will not be compromised to yield to the preferences of others, to show perfect courtesy, to show culturally appropriate ways of respect and honor towards those who are worthy of it. So we show a perfect courtesy towards all people. However, if we merely stopped at verse 2 and we ended with those sets of instructions, which are glorious instructions. I love those instructions. They, they help me so much as someone who is inclined to fight with others. Someone who is inclined to start verbal sparring matches. To be gentle. But if we just stopped there and we didn't go deeper as Paul goes deeper, all we would be promoting is sheer moralism. And we would be like every other religion in the world. Live this way because it's good. Live this way because it will benefit you. Live this way because it's helpful to others. All good things, for sure. The scripture commandments, the the commandments of scripture are pleasant and they are wise and they are good for us and they will benefit others. But there's something deeper This life of grace is rooted in something deeper. The life of grace is rooted in the gift of grace, the grace of God. In order to carry out this life of submission to authorities, of obedience to those who are in authority, of being ready for every good work, to being gentle and kind towards others, especially towards those whom we think don't deserve our kindness, we must be rooted in something far more than a mere instruction. We have to be rooted in two more things. And it's in your outline on the back of your bulletin if you want to see, if you want to look there. A life of grace must be rooted in, first, a humble recognition of our previous condition. A humble recognition of our previous condition. But that's going to be understood in light of something else. We can't just stay there either. We have to go even deeper than that. And we have to go deep into the gospel, the good news. And we don't want to just be cliche by saying it's all about the gospel. It is. But we don't want to just start stop by using that word. We want to define what we mean by this gospel. So we're going to do some theology today. And I want to show you how practical theology is. We need also a robust understanding of the gospel. That will be verses 4 through 7. So let's look first here at a life of grace that is first rooted in a humble recognition of our previous condition. This is verse 3, and it's plain in the text. Paul says this. He begins right after this set of instructions of how we are to live. He says, he uses the word, for. And so now he's given reasons why we are unable to live this way. For we ourselves, he's talking to believers. He's talking to Christians. He's talking to those who've been born again, as we'll see in a moment. He says, we ourselves were once foolish. He is now going to start contrasting the instructions that he gave in verses one and two now with how we used to live. We were once foolish. What does this mean? Well, depending on your background, depending on what life was like for you before you came to Christ, 
Potentially, you lived a very foolish lifestyle. You made foolish decisions financially. Maybe you bet it all at the, in Las Vegas and lost it all, and, and you are now suffering the fallout from that. Perhaps you made foolish romantic decisions, and you're suffering the fallout from that. But generally speaking, we were foolish. We had no compass to guide us through life. There was no real way to navigate the intricacies and the complexities of life and relationship and decisions. And so most of our decisions were foolish and in some cases brought us harm. We were foolish. I need to stop here and say and and just qualify this. This doesn't not everything has to qualify or has, has to explain and characterize every Christian as though you must have felt and walked in each of these before you came to Christ. But what this does is it explains uh, what our life was, generally speaking, before we came to Christ. So that in some measure, we will have experienced these more or less than perhaps someone else. If you were young when you uh, were saved, you may not feel that you lived in malice and envy in the way that someone who was saved at age 20 lived in malice and envy. But we'll talk about that in a moment. But just just understand that these are not meant to characterize every Christian in the same way. But let's still listen and hear what Paul has to say. So we were foolish, but we were foolish not because we were merely foolish, but because we were foolish, we were ignorant of God and who he was. We were ignorant of his word. We were ignorant of his wisdom. Ephesians 4, 17 and 18 tells us that the reason for this ignorance was not intellectual incompetence, but a heart hardened to God. And his truth. We were foolish. When we talked about spiritual things, it was with laughable ignorance. I just cringed to think of the way I used to talk about God. As though I knew anything at all about his ways prior to him revealing himself to me in the gospel. That was us. We were foolish. Secondly, Paul says we were disobedient. And what is this? All Paul's doing is he's adding dis to obedient, same word that he used in verse 1, obedient. In the Greek, this would be the alpha primitive if it's just the A before the word that he uses for obedient. So we were not obedient. We were disobedient. What is this? Well, prior to God bringing us into submission to him, we were generally not subject to and disobedient to the authorities that God had put in our lives. Police officers, governing authorities parents, employers. We bristled against their authority. Secretly inside of us, we hated that authority. We wanted none of it. We wanted to shed that authority. We wanted to be our own authority. And that was not merely contained in our hearts, but it would lead out into actual disobedience. Scripture places disobedience to parents alongside the worst of sins. Why? Because it reflects our disobedience to the greatest authority, namely God, who put those parents in place. But that was us. We were disobedient. We bristled against authority. We bristled against the legitimate people that God had put in our lives for our blessing and our benefit to lead and guide and shape us, to keep us safe. But we are also led astray. Let's look at this next phrase we were led astray we ourselves were once foolish we were disobedient we were led astray we are easily captured by false teaching we are easily captured by the philosophies of this world system we were easily tossed to and fro from one set of truths to the other trying to figure out this life and this world and what is true and what isn't we were often led astray and this might be the testimony of of some of you. I know a number of, of people who had bounced from religion to religion to religion until Christ finally revealed himself to them. Some people who went from Islam to Buddhism to Hinduism to Catholicism, just trying to sample each little thing to say, there is truth in all of them. There's truth I can find in all of them. We were led astray. We were captivated by false teachers. Perhaps you were... One at one point captivated by the health, wealth, and prosperity teachers. 
And you gave away a lot of your money thinking that you would receive tenfold in return to spend on your own pleasures. You were led astray. I was led astray. That's who we were at some level. What else? What else describes us in our previous condition? Doesn't look pretty. We were enslaved. We were enslaved to our desires and our pleasures. Perhaps it was sexual immorality sensuality maybe if you're thinking well that wasn't me i grew up in a christian home maybe you were enslaved to self-righteousness and enslaved to looking down upon others who are not as righteous as you you were enslaved i was enslaved to our uh, my own desires and pleasures as uh, as peter read today in ephesians chapter 2 we walked according to the course of this world. We were, we were kept and we were guided and we were directed by Satan himself. We were entrapped by our own desires. And those desires were used by our enemy to make us do things that we will probably forever regret. We were enslaved. Unable to release ourselves. Unable to get ourselves out of that prison. And he says to various passions and pleasures. So this covers anything you might imagine. Whether that's that pleasure or desire for promotion and recognition by the watching world. Whether that is passion and the desire to be rich, to accumulate wealth, to find your joy and satisfaction in that. Or as what we already said, some sort of sensual pleasure you were enslaved i was enslaved i could not break out and i remember being in high school wanting to break out not being able to figure out how it worked i don't know if i've told you this story before but prior to coming to christ i had heard the gospel i came to christ sophomore year of college and i had heard the gospel and i saw people around me and i wanted that change and i thought the change came by saying jesus was lord so i'd literally go into my room and say jesus is lord and i'd wait Look around. Where's the change? I need that change. I want that change. Not realizing that it came by faith and repentance in a mighty work of God. But nevertheless, I was enslaved. I wanted to change. I saw that I was enslaved to my lusts and my desires. And I needed something. See, I believe that every person in the world desires regeneration. They know something is wrong with them on the inside. They may not call it regeneration. They may not have the theological category for that. They may not tie it to Christ and the Scripture and the Holy Spirit. But everyone is looking for regeneration. Everyone is looking for renewal on the inside. It can only come through Christ and the Spirit. But that's what I was looking for, and I was enslaved. I could not break out. And that's the way you were, too. But not only that, but we lived our lives in malice and envy. You remember this? You remember when you were bent on revenge? You were bent on getting even? You were bent on bitterness? You thrived on it? You fed on bitterness like food. You remember that? Remember those days? You actually found an enjoyment of causing problems for others? You found enjoyment in creating drama within your relationships so that you could be angry at someone. You remember that? I remember that. I fed on that. And so did you before you were brought to Christ. Passing our days in malice and envy, speaking ill of each other, looking for fights, tearing people down, thriving off bitterness. Perhaps... There is nothing more that shows the deadness of a soul than it's thriving off the anguish of others. That's where we were. That's where we were. And again, you might say, well, Derek, I was saved at a, a young age. How about that bitterness that you cultivated towards your siblings? That self-righteousness you had towards other friends of yours? You too once lived in malice and envy. And this resulted in, in a life that where we were hated by others and we hated one another. Now, I'm going back to my 20-year high school reunion next Saturday in Billings. 
And let's just say that I had a group of friends and we weren't, none of us were believers at the time and we thrived on making life difficult for other students. And so we lived in a way that we were hated by others and we hated others. And now I'm going to go back. I didn't go to my 10 year. I'm going to go to my 20 year. Now I'm going to go back and I'm going to actually face those for whom I made life very difficult. And I hope there's opportunity for me to talk to them and verbally repent to their face. That's how we lived. We lived in such a way that people hated us. Now, you might be saying, but hey, hey, Derek, well, mm, you might be starting. Hey, I, I don't won't people hate us if we follow Christ. Well, yeah, they will. If We follow Christ. We pursue him with all of our hearts and we don't compromise. People will hate us. Jesus promised that John 15, right? There's a world of difference between being hated because we walk in true righteousness and being hated because we're jerks. It's a massive world of difference. And our immaturity tempts us to justify our being jerks to others because, like I've said earlier, we have a righteous cause. We must be careful. Now that we've been saved, we, there's a sweetness and a gentleness about us. We no longer cultivate that hatred towards others and no longer do we receive that hatred from others for our being antagonistic and so on. So that's where we were. Now, why does Paul list all of these things? Well, first, it's to wake us up that we are no different from the worst of unbelievers we might come in contact, but because it's these characteristics that tend to tempt us to most despise in others. It's these characteristics that we see in others that we are most tempted to despise. And so Paul has to remind us. He has to wake us up and tell us, this is who you used to be. How can you boast how can we be arrogant how can we be nothing but gentle towards those who need the same grace that we received but like i said we have to go even deeper than this we have to go even deeper than this and we have to understand our previous condition in light of the gospel so we will be more ready to be ready for every good work and avoid quarreling and to be gentle and to be obedient as we recognize our previous condition, but only as we understand that in light of the gospel. That's why I give you the second piece here, a robust understanding of the gospel. If we're going to live this life of grace, we must understand who we once were, but we also must understand this gospel. And now we're going to go a little deeper into some theology. But I want you to listen carefully because this will be so vital for us. First, we see in uh, verse 4, we see that Paul is going to give us the basis of our salvation, the basis of our salvation, which is not our works, not our merits, not ourselves, but what? The goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior. What does he say? He says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior appeared, now he's giving you your testimony. If you, if you don't know what to give, say for your testimony and you're afraid of getting up in front of people, and you're just you're petrified at the thought of giving a testimony, just read uh, Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 7. There's your testimony. There it is. Boom. Done. Got that settled. So now you can go give your testimony. Chapter, or verse 4. But when, he's describing what happened to us, the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. So what does this mean? My question was, as I study this text, is what does he mean by appear? This is, this is kind of strange. What do you mean by appeared? Let's look up at chapter 2, verse 11. He says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So what is he referring to there? I believe he's referring to the appearing of Christ, the incarnation, the Son of God coming down on earth with the gospel, the good news that instructs us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and so on. 
So it's talking about this objective reality. Christ comes down. He brings the gospel. He appears. The grace of God appears. The grace of God is not an abstract concept. The grace of God is a person, namely Jesus Christ. So the grace of God comes down in an objective sense. But here in this text, Paul is talking about something subjective that happens, doesn't he? It says, when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. And if you look down in a few sentences, he says, according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So he's talking about a subjective experience here. The Holy Spirit being poured out upon us. The washing of regeneration on the inside. So I tend to think that we shouldn't separate one from the other. There's an objective reality. The grace of God has appeared in the person of Jesus Christ. And then guess what? Based on that, the grace of God appears to you in the gospel as the Holy Spirit opens your eyes to behold what you were unable to behold previous to that. So the grace of God appears to you personally based on the appearance of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. That's what it means. That's what I believe Paul is getting at here. The goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared in Christ and to us. Both things are needed to be saved. Christ saved you on the cross. God saved you on the cross. And God saves you by changing your heart. Both things must happen. So we have the basis of our salvation. It's the loving loving kindness and goodness of God our Savior. Now let's look at these words. Goodness. It was God's goodness that saved us. What is this? The goodness of God is an intrinsic quality that moves God to take pity upon those and to do best, do what is best to those who are in rebellion against him and who are ignorant of their present condition. The goodness of God is that intrinsic quality that moves him to take pity on those who are in total rebellion against him and who are ignorant of that condition and yet do what is best for them, namely bring them into relationship with him and wipe away their sins for eternity. It was God's goodness. What did God show Moses on the mountain when he passed before him? What did he show him? His goodness. God is good. God is compassionate. God's heart breaks over those who are suffering. It says in Lamentations that he does not willingly afflict the sons of men. That means from his heart. God is a compassionate God. His goodness overflows into saving those who are completely ignorant that they need saving. It's his goodness. But notice also it's his loving kindness. And I want to camp out on this for a moment because in my own life and in doing, I've done enough counseling of my own heart and enough counseling with others to recognize that a lot of us think, we may not say it, but down deep inside, we kind of think or we're kind of suspicious of God's love for us. We think that somehow Jesus Christ, by his death on the cross, enabled God's love. God kind of had his arm twisted behind his back through the cross so now he can finally love us so that we suspect god's love for us was not his motivating to save us but now he finally can love us because christ has died and for us and now the one once stingy father can now finally love us and i have found that there are not a few christians who actually entertain these thoughts about our heavenly father and we we need to be reminded that It was out of God's love that he sent his son for you in the first place. Was God angry at your sin? Yes, he was. Did God love you and send his son for you? Yes, he did. God the Father was motivated out of a heart of love for you to send his son. The cross doesn't enable God to love you. The cross displays God's love for you. This is vital. This is vital. Just like the serpent in the garden tempted Adam and Eve to doubt the goodness and loving kindness of their heavenly father, so Satan will tempt you to doubt the loving kindness of your heavenly father and to think that he's some sort of stingy, 
giver who doesn't who didn't really love you, but now is forced to love you because of the cross. Not true. John three sixteen is pretty clear, isn't it? He sent the son out of love. Love for you. When the goodness and loving kindness of God, our savior appeared, he saved us. It was final. It can't be. You can't go back on it. Justification can't be reversed. Regeneration can't be undone. He saved us. He sealed us with his Holy Spirit. It's done. It's complete. It's final. But I want us to see here. Paul is going to emphasize something vital again. He's going to say not because of works done by us in righteousness. So the basis of our salvation is God's goodness and his loving kindness. It is not our works. Whether those works are righteous or unrighteous, they have nothing to do with God's salvation of your soul. It's not on the basis of this works. But why bring this up at this point? Why bring this up at this point? And this is where theology becomes really practical. Why bring it up at this point? Because the only way we will walk in humble compassion towards others in the gentleness and the courtesy that Paul calls us to in earlier in Titus 3, the only way we'll walk in that kind of humility is when we believe in our heart of hearts that the only difference between me and the worst of pagans in the world is the sheer, pure grace of God. Humility for it to be true and genuine and lasting and rugged and durable must be rooted in the truth that you were saved wholly and entirely apart from your works. And that the only thing that separates us from the worst of all unbelievers is pure, undefiled, unadulterated grace. Now, this is where we're going to step into the theology because this now approaches the issue of the freedom of our wills, something over which I'm sure a number of you have wrestled. And I wonder how many of us are dissuaded from wrestling with this issue because we think it's only a theological, philosophical issue that academic theologians are pondering over in the wee hours in their ivory towers. Is that you? Let me encourage you to approach this question from another angle by showing you that our ability to walk in humility has to do with what we believe at this point. Let me show you what I mean. If you are like most people, you believe... Now, maybe I should just step back. Maybe you are well-educated in this area, um, and I don't want to insult your intelligence. But by and large, we tend to believe, when it comes to freedom of the will, in something called libertarian, libertarian freedom. And what that means is we are adamant about having a free will. God has given us a free will, and I would say that he has. And we conceive of that free will like this. There is a sovereign I inside of me. There's this freedom of the will inside of me. There's this free will inside of me that is free to make decisions. And it is so free that nothing internal in terms of my desires or my background or whatever it might be, or even God himself is able to force me to make any decisions. God cannot have any influence. My background cannot have any influence. My desires cannot have any influence. I am the one who makes this decision if I'm going to be truly free. Now, you may not have thought about it that deeply before, but that just tends to be the default of most people. When we are defending the freedom of the will, we say we are free. God has made to be, give us, he gave us free will, freedom to make choices. That's how we conceive of it. However, I would argue that biblically, we do have free wills. God has given us free will. It's a gift. It's a gift to have a free will. The freedom of our will, however, consists not in the ability to make decisions without any influence. It's the ability to do what we most want to do. That's the freedom of the will. It's the ability to do what we most want to do. 
when it comes to Christ and the gospel and repentance and faith, what do we most want to do? Not believe, not obey, not repent. That's what we most want to do. We most want to live in autonomy. We most want to do what we want to do. We most want to serve self and serve the flesh and do what we want to do. So what is it? where does this leave us? Well, if you are someone who believes that, that the will is free to make decisions based on no external influences whatsoever, even God's influence, because if God could move the will, then we would not no longer be free. If that's how you conceive of it, then you, in order to protect the grace of God, you have to say, well, God gives grace to everyone when they're born, and then it's up to you to exercise that grace and to believe in Jesus Christ. Okay, do you, do you follow me here? So if you believe in libertarian free will, no influence on your will, in order to say that you are saved by grace, you then must say that God has given us grace. Everyone, everyone in the world has grace. And now it's up to you to exercise that grace and to believe in Jesus. Now just hold on a second. Because you'll start to see, if you're following Paul's argument here, if you, you'll start to see that that destroys the possibility to have compassion on unbelievers. Why? Because the difference between you and them is that you're smarter than they are. Or you're able to exercise your will better than they are. And so now you don't have compassion. You have self-righteous pity. And you want to go up and smack them because they're not believing in Jesus. You see, if we think that if we conceive of the freedom of the will that way, then we will not be able to have genuine compassion on others because they are foolish and stupid to not exercise the free will that God has given them. Come on, just exercise your free will and believe in Jesus. You see how that's going to kill compassion and gentleness and patience and showing perfect courtesy towards others? We're just going to get frustrated and angry all the time. Come on, snap out of it. On the other hand, if salvation, like Paul presents it here, if salvation is wholly and entirely and completely from God, and if grace is conceived of God effectually changing the desires of our hearts so that now we freely want Christ when we encounter someone who doesn't have Christ, we want them so badly to have the same grace that we received. And there's no pride because there's nothing to boast in. I didn't save me. I didn't have a free will to save me. All my will wanted to do was sin against God and he had to reach down and rearrange and remake my entire person so that I might believe in Jesus Christ. There's no boasting in that. And now I am free to love my neighbor. I am free to show gentleness and patience to those who don't have that grace. Paul would ask you this way. If you are, if we are arrogant towards those who are unbelieving, Paul would ask you, what do you have that you have not received? And if you have received it, why do you boast as though you haven't? I love this illustration. I, if you're not into John Newton, I would encourage you to buy a book um, on John Newton. He's just a delightful theologian from the 1700s, just a delightful pastor. And he just, he just illustrates these uh, truths so well. And so listen to this illustration. He puts it this way. He says, a company of travelers fall into a pit. He's illustrating now this reality of humility uh, in those who have tasted of the grace of Christ. And he says, a company of travelers fall into a pit. One of them gets a passenger to draw them out. Or I'm sorry, a passerby to draw him out. So a company of travelers fall into a pit, however that happened. One of them gets a passerby to draw them out. So they're in this pit, passerby comes along, and he pulls one of the uh, people in this party out. Now the person who got drawn out, he should not be angry for the rest for falling in, nor because they were not yet out as he is. He did not pull himself out. Instead, therefore, of reproaching them, he should show them pity, right? How unfitting it would be 
for the person who just got pulled out to start reproaching the people still in the pit for not getting pulled out. It's completely unfitting. He says, a man truly illuminated will no more despise others than Bartimaeus. Remember the, the man who is healed of his blindness. A man truly illuminated will no more despise others than Bartimaeus, after his own eyes were open, would take a stick and beat every blind man that he met. In other words, it's to, that doesn't make sense that Bartimaeus, after Christ has sovereignly opened his eyes, that he would go around and beat other blind people, say, why are you blind? Why are you blind? Why are you blind? You fool. That's completely unfitting. And yet when we are acting in arrogance towards those who are unbelieving and we are failing to practice gentleness and patience, that's what we reveal about ourselves and our own need for growth in this area. We have not yet truly understood the grace of God. So you can see that this issue of the freedom of the will and the sovereignty of God and salvation is intensely practical for your own life. Let us not be fooled into thinking that this is a discussion for the academic theologians. This is for the church. It's for you. It is for your life. Well, then Paul is going to give us not only the basis of salvation, but now the means of salvation. And this is verses 5 through 7, kind of splitting them up a little bit. He says, it's not done by the works done by us in righteousness. No way we can boast. But it's according to his own mercy. It's according to God's own mercy. What does he do? He, it's by the means of washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Again, these verses are emphasizing the freeness of God's grace, the fullness of God's grace, the completeness of God's grace. He is doing the work. It's as though he reaches down out of heaven and transforms us. Now, you might be saying, Derek, did I not exercise my will and believe in Jesus? Did I not exercise my heart and mind and believe in Jesus? Indeed, you did. And the Bible holds you responsible to do that. None of us should leave today. If you're here without Christ today, do not leave today thinking, well, God has not exercised his sovereign grace in my life. Therefore, I will not believe. The Bible holds you responsible to believe and to believe right now. If you are without Christ right now, I would summons you on the basis of Scripture to come to Christ for salvation right now. The warrant for you to believe is in the gospel, which says, come to Christ now for forgiveness. But it was God's work that renewed our souls that raised us from the dead. So thank you so much, Peter, for reading uh, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, because it clearly emphasizes that we are raised from the dead. When Paul talks about being saved by grace, that's what he means. Being raised from the dead. Could you do anything when you were dead? Could you work? Could you think? Could you pray? Could you ask? No. God raised us from the dead. And this looks like him doing a mighty work on us on the inside, we the regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. If we're honest, we would admit that prior to Christ, more so than it is now, that prior to Christ, our inward life was an absolute mess. Our inward lives were an absolute mess, just enslaved to lust and pleasures and self-righteousness and feeding on bitterness and so on. And that's why we need this regeneration. What is regeneration? Regeneration refers to God's inward work in our hearts where he creates a new nature within us. He creates a new person. You are a new creation. You are a preview of things to come. Did you know that? You are a new creation. We become a new person. God raises us spiritually from the dead on the inside and gives us a new heart with new desires. True conversion, therefore, based on this text and elsewhere, true conversion is not merely a decision. True conversion is not merely a decision. It is a wholesale change of the inner person where your desires used to be for self and unrighteousness are now for Christ and righteousness. Salvation is either a change of our inward desires or it is nothing. There must be an inward change, and that's what regeneration does. And why is Paul placing this here? Well, because 
we need to be rescued and saved. We needed to be rescued and saved from this inward life of foolishness and disobedience and being led astray and being slaves to various pleasures and passions and so on. We needed to be saved and rescued not only externally, which is vital. We had to be, we're saved on the cross, but we also have to be saved on the inside. We have to be born again on the inside. And this is an abundant blessing. Watch Paul's language here. Verse 6. The Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So again, this is not an abstract concept. Regeneration is never meant to be understood apart from Jesus Christ, which is making the gospel so central at this point. God pours this out it richly upon us in Jesus Christ. This is an abundant blessing. God's blessings in his salvation is abundant. He gives you everything that you need for life and godliness. He cleanses our hearts. Paul tells us in Romans that he sheds his love abroad for us in our hearts. God's own love is able to be tasted and enjoyed in our own hearts as we believe in him and fellowship with him. That's conversion. Now, I want us to notice this last sentence before we wrap things up. Because it's the only place that Paul says this. And I find it stunning. Watch what he says in verse 7. Follow the argument. We have been saved by God through on the basis of his goodness and his loving kindness. Not on the basis of our works. He pours us this Holy Spirit whom he regenerates us and renews us. He pours that Holy Spirit out richly so that being justified by his grace we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life so what god is planning in what he does in salvation is he makes his actual legitimate heirs of the gift of eternal life but how does he do that he justifies us by his grace why should that cause us to pause for a moment? It's because every single other place in the New Testament that Paul talks about justification, he says we're justified by faith, doesn't he? Why here would he say that we're justified by grace? I believe it's because his agenda in this text is clearly to place the accent on God's sovereign work in salvation must you believe in order to be justified in order to be declared righteous before god yes that's what justification is justification is god declaring you righteous fully righteous perfectly righteous in his sight according to his law even though you are still a sinner must you believe in order for that justification to happen absolutely Romans 4, 5 is clear. The one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. You must believe. Salvation only comes to those who believe. But the emphasis, the accent here is on God's sovereign grace in the life of the believer so that ultimately we can say that we're not even justified ultimately by faith. We're justified by God's grace. How so? Because it is God's grace that gives us the faith to believe. F Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. That's what happens when you don't write these things down. We are told that we are granted faith. We are granted not only suffering for Christ's sake, but the ability to believe in him. Second Timothy 2, where we're going to go over now and, and, and land this plane, tells us that God grants repentance. Because I want us to go over to 2 Timothy 2 and to see that I'm not just taking Paul in one text and setting him against Paul in another text. Paul grounds our ability to walk humbly before unbelievers in the sovereignty of God in salvation. I mentioned Philippians 1, where we are granted faith. Here in this text, we'll see that we are granted repentance. Note his argument. Watch what he says here. Here again, he's talking to a pastor, but by extension, this would apply to all believers. 
It says, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. Does that sound familiar? The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. That sounds a lot like what we've already seen in Titus, doesn't it? This kind of life where you're able to teach, you're not compromising on what you believe, you're not compromising on Scripture, you're able to teach, you're even able to correct, which means you're telling people that they're, what, wrong. But you do it, we do it in gentleness. How are we able to do that? God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. How are we able to do that? Again, just like we saw in Titus, because we know that it is only by the grace of God that that person with whom we are disagreeing, who is fighting so hard with us right now, only the grace of God that enabled us to repent can enable that person to repent. Verse 26, and that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captivated by him to do his will. Is the unbeliever responsible to believe? Absolutely. And you must press that upon them. It's your responsibility to believe. But in another significant sense, they are a victim. A victim of their circumstances? No. A victim of their upbringing? No. A victim of our arch enemy. You remember what I said last week? We have an enemy, but it's not the person in front of you. It's not the pundit on the TV screen. It's not the senator with whom you disagree fundamentally. That enemy is the same enemy that Paul lists here. It is the serpent of old who deceives all mankind. When we recognize that God is the one who grants repentance, he's the one who saves from the clutches of our enemy, we will walk in humility and gentleness and patience with others. So that's what we find in this text we find rich instruction, we find a means to humility, and we see that it all relies upon the gospel and understanding who we were and understanding the grace of God in Jesus Christ, giving us this hope of eternal life. Well, would you let me uh, pray for us, and then we will wrap things up. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is a rich text, and I just pray that the words that have been spoken that have sought to explain this text and apply it, they would penetrate deeply into the hearts of these folks in as much as they align with and are accord with your word. I pray that your truth would burrow deep into our hearts and bear fruit, the fruit of kindness, of humility, of conviction of a sweetness towards others that is enduring, that is grounded in a right understanding of who we were and who you are and what you've done. Thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for these people. Would you just work special, a special way in their lives today? And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.